Welcome to Takeaways, Life Lessons Learned. I'm your host, Hayam Mizrahi, recording from MDL Group. Recognized market leaders in commercial real estate brokerage and property management in Las Vegas, Nevada. Join me as I explore my takeaways from the people who have influenced me the most. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Ms. Rahi. You now have two seasons of takeaways under your belt. I was honored to be a guest on season one and have had several takeaways from other guests. While I would love to recap most of season two as Reed exceptionally recapped season one last year, I feel that we, the listeners, want answers. We want to know who Hayam Mizrahi is and what takeaways we can gain from him. In preparation of today, I asked if there was anything off limits and you chuckled and said no. Then I asked for Danielle's phone number, your wife. And with that said, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Takeaways, Life Lessons Learned Remix. I'm today's host, (laughs) (laughs) Angelica Marie Clemmer from ROI Commercial Real Estate, recording this in the studios of the well-respected MDL group. And you ready? I'm ready. That was really good. Okay, I worked hard on that. You have a future in radio. <laughs> I don't know about that. You didn't have to work at the naturalness of your radio voice. I I, pr- I practiced a couple of times in the mirror, so we're good. Did you? Once, but and all the way here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in the car. You know. So like, last time you were here, you you were not Angelica Marie Clemmer. No, I was Angelica Marie Lopez. I am recently married, which has been exciting. But we'll talk about that later. Mazel Tov. Thanks. Um, but this isn't about me. It's about you. So. So I should stop asking questions. Yeah. Just sit back and listen. All right. And answer. Fine. <laughs> All right. I know we briefly discussed on my episode on how you and I met through Jared Katz, who was trying to keep me engaged in my career at the time and told me that you were looking for committee members for CCIM. So he suggested we go to lunch and you told me to um, name the place right so being the good gringa girl that i am i recommended the best al pastor tacos <laughs> in town at tacos El gordo and got there and you're like i don't eat pork that's like, right that's really awkward didn't they have beef tacos they did so you were able to eat the carne asada tacos but i still felt horrible because one jared didn't tell me that two i'm like the El Pastor tacos are fantastic. I'm talking them up, and you're like, oh, I don't eat pork. Jared always says it's fine. It's white meat. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like that. No one sells that. pork like Jared. <laughs> so, with the fact that you don't eat pork, you're obviously a member of the Jewish community here yes. in Las Vegas. Uh, you are also born and raised. So, I want to know more about how small was the Jewish community when you were younger in the city. How has that grown in Las Vegas? And why has it been so important for you to stay an active member in the community? Whoa, all great questions. I can answer most of that with my opinion. And um, you know, starting with the first one, why was it so important? I think the reality is I didn't know anything different. I um, Obviously, my name is Chaim Mizrahi. <laughs> 
So there's no getting away from it as far as my identity goes. And I never wanted to get away from it. It's all I really ever have known. Uh, my first memories of life are at Temple Bet Shalom Preschool, uh, where I met my best friend, Isaac Blumberg. I spoke Hebrew. He spoke Spanish. And it seemed like it was a good idea for us to get along because everyone else spoke some foreign language called English. Um, <laughs> so that was really, you know, why is it important? It's really all I've, I've ever known. As far as how big the community was back then, I don't have a sense, you know, to compare it to today. I think one of the differences from my observations is that it was a much more unified community. There was really only one place to go. Temple Beth Shalom off of Oki. Now Temple Beth Shalom is relocated right by where I live at Sahara and, and uh, Town Center in that area. But there are over 20 synagogues in town now, um, all different parts of the spectrum from Orthodox to conservative to reform. And... I think the statistics that are out is that today there's something like 80,000 Jews in Las Vegas. The funny thing about that statistic is that's the only statistic that I've ever heard 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and now. So I don't know how many there are, actually. Interesting. I feel like anytime I meet a new Jewish person in Las Vegas, they already know my other Jewish friends, like immediately. Yes, we call that Jewish geography. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's that like happens that happens across uh, you know not, maybe not as much in Las Vegas certainly in in California and parts of the Midwest and and the East Coast where there's there are Jewish summer camps where everybody goes very much so in Canada and mm -hmm. you kind of know everybody from Jewish summer camp mm -hmm. I had a fraternity brother Benji Ackerman <laughs> we were on a trip together it was fun it was uh, sponsored through uh, Hillel at UNLV it was an APAC policy conference that we got to go to as students and we're on the bus in dc there's you know tens of thousands of jews there and there's you know a student contingency from all over the country benji ackerman was the first person to bring jewish geography to life anybody he met he had a connection to from somebody he grew up in the jewish summer camp system and was a camp counselor oh wow interesting my only childhood friend um that was jewish although her mother was catholic and her father was jewish so that made things really interesting for her on the holidays but she went to double holidays <laughs> to a jewish camp in northern um part of new york mm -hmm. um but she loved it and she's still very much in touch with all of those friends and when we were younger we used to be mad at her because she would like go away for the summer and then talk about her jewish camp friends all year long and then we would have her through the boring time of the year while we were in school and then you know she'd go back so Camp, that was Camp Shinawa. I will never forget it. But anyways, enough about that. Um, I want to talk more about what you're doing now in the Jewish community. So you are involved in the JCC, which for those of you that don't know, is the Jewish Community Center. And Jewish Nevada Connect is something that I feel like you're recently in, involved with. Uh, I'm not positive. I'm just going off of mm -hmm. your Facebook post and, you know, trying to... <laughs> <laughs> to keep I'm myself updated because we're getting we're life. getting into just like in uh, real estate there's the alphabet soup yeah uh, naop sior ccim roi yeah. mdl there's all these acronyms sure. they're same in the jewish community but keep going and then i'll so um i'll tell you what i'm up to mostly your involvement with both of those organizations how long you've been involved with both of them and what do you get most out of your involvement why why are you there why are you choosing to spend your time there so back to how uh, how long I've been involved, I feel like I'm a lifer. 
I grew okay. up in these <laughs> systems of the Jewish community, mm-hmm. and now I'm in a position where I'm able to give back and create things. It's a creative outlet, which we can talk about uh, some things too. Um, but there's a need that I see that I am uh, able to fill, and that's that's what I'm doing. So to kind of go through the acronyms, Jewish Nevada is a, a more recent name uh, for, for Jewish Federation. Jewish Federation, mm. um, I don't know when they started or how they started, different a bit than the JCC, but the Jewish Federation in Jewish Nevada is an, an umbrella organization that fundraises and then makes allocations within the Jewish community for services ranging from, uh, there's a program called Right Start, which is uh, kind of like I, I was in a Jewish preschool. It's getting Jewish kids in Jewish preschools early on, all the way up to Senior Care, Senior Lifeline, which is funded through Jewish Family Services Agency, JFSA. There's a spectrum of services that Jewish Nevada will fundraise for and allocate. And it's not just Jewish causes. There's endless causes. One of the things lately that I've been talking about with the leadership there is that there's no, it's not specific. You know, uh, we were at a gala recently. Mm-hmm. Nevada, Childhood Cancer Foundation. Mm -hmm. Specific. Mm -hmm. Nevada Childhood Cancer. Kids with cancer in Nevada. So specific. If that's something that calls to your heartstrings, it's easy to pick up. For sure. Jewish Nevada, what do you guys do? It's like the United Way for the Jewish community is the best example you can give to give someone a picture. But it's there's so much under what they do. It's hard to wrap your head around that cause that pulls your heartstrings. Yeah. But the reality is it's there's anything under the sun is uh, mostly under Jewish Nevada. So uh, JCC is a bit different. Ju- Jewish Community Center, that whole concept came from uh, earlier in the century when Jews were not allowed into country clubs. <laughs> I brain farted on that. <laughs> Jews were not allowed into country clubs, so they started their own called Jewish Community Centers. And in other communities, it's it's like a country club. There's mm-hmm. uh, basketball courts, squash courts, uh, places for youth, places for elderly. They're actually community centers. We don't have one here mm-hmm. in the way that, that it's not a brick and mortar, mm-hmm. but there is an organization and they, and they do do programming for the Jewish community. So, uh, you know, anything from young leadership programming to camps, they do camps mm-hmm. for kids, uh, adult programming, all sorts of stuff. So Jewish Community Center, in a way, is funded through allocations for from Jewish Nevada. So where I spend most of my time is with Jewish Nevada as of late. And it's, it's a few things that we've either recreated or reimagined. One of them, the first one two years ago, was the Jewish Nevada Men's Division. So within Jewish Nevada, there's, there's, there are different affinity groups. Mm-hmm. Women's philanthropy is a vibrant, thriving group within Jewish Nevada. It's, um, I'm trying to think of a, like Junior League or one of these where mm-hmm. they, they have programs, they fundraise, they are super involved, uh, incredibly dedicated yep. what was missing for jewish nevada was the equivalent on the men's side so we two years ago we we created it interesting and uh, out of that mm-hmm. is the jewish nevada connect which is a bit different this is where i geek out on being specific <laughs> jewish nevada men's division has events for active jewish men that have incredible demands on their time but prioritize being jewish and want some kind of connection to the Jewish community. So we do six events a year. They're social in nature. Mm-hmm. At one of these events, a transplant from California, he came to the events, likes the events, said to us, you know what's missing 
that we don't have are networking events. So we started Jewish Nevada Connect, which are networking events for active Jewish professionals that enjoy networking with other active <laughs> Jewish professionals. Very nice. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. So I have two more questions just on that, just on a couple of things that you said. One of them is, and I was thinking about this while I was doing research with you and the Jewish community. And do you think that the organizations that you discussed are putting so much more time into the younger generations? And like you said, getting them into Jewish preschools, because I feel that like my generation, I'm a millennial and younger, there's, I think there's a lot less religion focus. I think people are like much more open-minded to being spiritual and not so religious because I think there's just so much information and I, at least being raised Catholic, my parents were raised super, super Catholic, mm -hmm. um, Catholic school, all of those fun things. And they hated being raised so strictly Catholic that they were like, okay, you guys don't have to do everything that mm -hmm. we did. So I think that, um, I think it's interesting that there are a lot of organizations within, in the Jewish community that are very much empowering of the children learning where they're coming from yeah. at such a young age. And then the other thing I was going to say too, is, um, your reference to like the United way, mm -hmm. um, with my nonprofit experience, we've, we really did find that when you're doing too many things, it's hard to be great at anything because you're just spread too thin. And so when you're this big umbrella and have your hand in all of these places, you're, you're assisting in, in some way, but you could really be changing something if you're a little bit more focused so do you feel like that that's kind of what your goal is with these when you say that that's what you want to do in, with involvement which question do you want to go for first <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> let's stick with that one because there's something here that um, informs me and in what I do with Jewish Nevada as it relates to like the men's division and the connect series and you know what I observed which is there there's no um specific message for Jewish Nevada, which is, it's a challenge for them, mm -hmm. but it's not any different than, than brokerage mm -hmm. in a way. And today there's technology that can help you manage all of it. So let me just kind of pick a bit at this. Zig Ziglar has a saying, uh, be a meaningful specific, not a wandering generality. Mm. What does that mean? Be a meaningful specific, not a wandering generality. Don't have a Jewish event, have a Jewish Nevada men's division event specifically for active Jewish men who have incredible demands on their time. Mm -hmm. Why? Because if you look at it that way, you will create an event that will attract that busy person. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. In our world, be a meaningful, specific, not a wandering generality. You are a retail specialist within commercial real estate. Hey, Angelica, what do you do? I do commercial real estate. That's not typically how you answer unless mm -hmm. you want it to be a shorter conversation. Yeah. You are a retail <laughs> expert mm -hmm. 24,000 real estate licensees in Clark County you are one of how many that does what you do yeah hundred maybe less mm -hmm. so that's a meaningful specific not a wandering generality and there's application for that all over that's one of the things that I lead with when I'm putting my time into these organizations and creating events for them and also in our in our business yeah now in a brokerage I can have an office team an office tenant rep team, an office investment sales team. And you can manage all that through various channels. 
and I don't know if it's related to your initial question about millennials or not, but that that's the world we live in. Mm -hmm. There's a channel for everything. If I want to reach a certain demographic in a certain way, there's Instagram. If I want to reach another demographic, there's Facebook and you don't, you don't post into those things in the same way because mm -hmm. you're reaching a different audience in a different way at a different headspace. And that, that goes again back to being specific. I like it. So I want to go back on being born and raised in Las Vegas uh, before it was cool to be Vegas born. In past episodes, you have mentioned your mother. Can you tell us more about your upbringing? I've learned just recently that it seemed that English was your second language. Kind of. When you were talking about your friend in preschool. Mm -hmm. uh, where are your parents from? I assume Israel. <laughs> you assume correctly. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, one of the things I'll say about now my mother being passed away for a few years, how much I relied on her for my memory. Mm -hmm. That would be a question that I would ask her. Like, I know for a fact as far well, I shouldn't say that really, but growing up, there was always a story of my first word. My first word was toda, thank you in Hebrew. Mm. So I know that my first language was Hebrew. Now, by the time I was in preschool, did I know any English or not? I, I don't know. That would be a cool question that I could ask my mom mm -hmm. if she were still alive. But um, the story was also that when I met Isaac, I spoke Hebrew and he spoke Spanish. It might have been mostly because I had old, older siblings and I would imagine that they were already in school and they spoke How many some amount of English. So I have an older brother, uh -huh. Eli, an older sister, Vita. We're a year and a month apart. Okay. This is all related to my upbringing. Uh -huh. I grew up in a house. I was the baby of three. Okay. Grew up in Henderson. My mom and dad are both Israeli. Uh -huh. The cool thing about their story is that they were not two Israelis that moved to America together. Mm -hmm. They came here separately and met here in Las Vegas and got married not long after they met each other. Interesting. Very interesting. Because of the wonderful Jewish community. You knew where to go because there's only one place to go. Yeah. I mean, I imagine back then, you know, two Israeli parents, broken English. Where would they send their kids to school? Mm -hmm. Might not be you know, a public school. It would be the Jewish day school mm -hmm. because that's what they know. And that's what's familiar to them. What did your parents do growing up for a living? So my dad was always in some form of construction. Okay. There was, a, you know, he grew up with his brothers and dad and they were uh, basically stucco laborers. They knew the stucco trade inside and out. They were real craftsmen. It was it was uh, cool as a kid to see my dad and his brothers actually doing a stucco job together mm -hmm. because you could see the uh, pecking order come to life on their past. And when they were on a job together, mm -hmm. as far as like who was a supervisor and who was who was not and and the pride that they took at who was better at at smearing and texturing the stucco than the other. But there was always some form of construction. There was a period that my dad was a custom home builder. Uh, I grew up on job sites, always doing something, mostly cleaning up around, you know, whatever scraps were on the floor, moving lumber from one place to another. If it was a cool day, we got to hammer nails into <laughs> studs. That's fun. Yeah. Uh, what about your mom? She worked in the family business. I mean, took care of us, took care of the home and also took care of the books, basically, of the business. Got it. And what did your dad's work days look like? Where... Were they long hours? Did you guys have family dinners? How did you guys spend time as a family? So what I can remember of it, he was up early, always up early and, and out of the house mostly on, on weekdays. 
Um, I remember I have memories of him hit a drafting table in the living room. Mm -hmm. So we would be watching TV and he would be at his table sometimes. We did do family dinners. um, And a question I actually asked my brother and sister recently, because it's hard for me to remember, and I don't know why, you know, what was it like around the dinner table? Mm-hmm. You block that out? Maybe. It's funny. One of my siblings doesn't remember much of our childhood either, which is so interesting to me how siblings can remember. Mm-hmm. Like you live the same life, basically, you know, under the same roof, but you all have different experiences with that life and, and how it's not only your memory, but how it's affected you in your adult life and who you've become and what you've taken from it or haven't taken from it. And I think that that's something that's really unique about having siblings. That's what I love about talking to my adult siblings now is, wait, how did you remember that happening? Like, that's not how it happened. This is how it Mm -hmm. happened. You know, everyone has like a a different version of what was. Um, So with that said, what, what's your relationship with your siblings now? Where, where are they? Are they local? Yep, they're both here. They both have families. Uh, we get together probably not as often as we would all like, but pretty frequently. My brother is an Orthodox Jew. He's got the beard and the kippah. Really? Or yarmulke, as some might say. Yep, he raises um, yeah, him and his wife are Orthodox, kosher. They raise their kids Orthodox. Interesting. So, yeah, so it's cool to see my sister's sons are at... Uh, also an Orthodox day school, mm-hmm. although she's not quite as strict, but she's also is very Jewish in that regard. One of the things I was going to say about Judaism, I remember now your question from earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting about what you talked about millennials and they're not necessarily attached or connected to religion as much as something else per se. What attracts me mostly to Judaism is not the religion. I have less, I feel like I have less of a connection with my Judaism when I'm at temple with a prayer book in my hand than I do when I'm engaged to it culturally. It's very mm-hmm. cultural for me, not so much religious, if that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but back to my brother and sister. Yeah, they're here and, and we get together and we would probably, if we asked all, all of us, we would all like to get together more. Okay. Well, I think that there are plenty of things to be said about being the baby in the family. And I know this because I'm the oldest and I've said plenty of things about <laughs> the baby in my family. What uh, would you say about the baby <laughs> of the family, Angelica? Well, you know, I feel like as being the oldest, like it was just always my fault and that they got away with everything. That they were spoiled. Yeah. Oh, so we have a lot of conversations around that. My brother is the oldest, firstborn son. When we were growing up, everyone would say that he's the smart one. Mm-hmm. He was the one that's always putting things together or you ask him for help with things. My sister was the middle and the only girl. So, of course, she got everything. She got away with everything. Mm-hmm. And I got nothing. And I do remember once I did say this in a joking way. And my mom was like, oh, right. You got nothing because I was the baby, right? Uh-huh. So, so you don't feel – well, I feel like the baby never feels that way anyways. But of you course don't, not. Yeah. But you – Although my little sister was the baby for six years and my brother popped up, you know, surprisingly. Ruined that for her. Oh, my God. She had (laughs) a horrible time with it. (laughs) But um, she like she's in complete denial when my brother like fully knows that he is spoiled. He's the only boy, too, in our family. So he was like on a whole other level of just Prince Mikey, just 
going through life and, and everyone Do else you call was him there. prince mikey no i don't <laughs> you just call him mikey but <laughs> mikey wherever you are you have a new nickname buddy seriously um okay so do you feel like with your siblings though do you feel like you were more along for the ride do you think that you were on your kind of your own path or you know how was that in your childhood were you playing with them were you doing your own thing did you feel like you were bugging them did you feel like you were leading them i think growing up there was certainly a period where they were closer Mm -hmm. and i was the odd man out of the of the unit which i didn't it didn't dawn it didn't like weigh on me in any way or another yeah but they were trying to think when it was certainly in high school maybe a bit before they were certainly closer as you know they had the same group of friends and I had a different group of friends mm-hmm. through a Jewish youth group where I met Jared BBYO. We all kind of had the same friends, but even within that, there were different cliques of friends and it was very much, you know, they were in one and I was in a different one. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And going back to your parents. So being immigrants, how do you feel that that shaped your childhood? Because I I mean, now I think that when people think of immigrants, especially because of modern news, it, everyone just thinks Mexican immigrants. Yeah. And I can attest to I'm, I'm half Mexican, but also my, you know, on my, my sign calls, I will often get a Spanish speaker because my my previous last name, my we maiden name. We talked about that, right. And um, there will be often times where they put on a child to yes to translate for them and i'm like blown away because i'm talking to actual commercial deals with like a seven-year-old but they're they're translating and and moving back and forth do you feel like that that was that was very much me and my siblings we were that child yeah and growing up with it it was um you know you translate tell them this tell say that my parents spoke english Mm mm-hmm a bit broken English. And another thing that shaped me is I would watch my mom would say this all the time. The second they hear an accent, they think you're dumb. Mm. You know, my grandfather came to visit. He spoke seven languages. He would go to Smith's every morning to buy chocolate chip cookies and other things. Seven languages didn't speak English though. Mm -hmm. And the irony is that here's a man that could speak seven languages. All the people he's speaking to can only speak one and there's this sentiment of the second you hear an accent, people think you're dumb. Mm-hmm. So that was very much a, th- a common theme. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, not just my parents, my aunts, my uncles that all came here eventually with them as well. So those two things came to mind. The immigrant thing, especially now that you talk, I mean, that you brought it up, you know, that resonates a bit because I'm, I'm only first generation. Mm-hmm. So the, f- the stuff we hear about now, it's, that was me just a few years ago. Yeah. I wonder what the statistic is on being first generation in like Las Vegas. Like that's where you like your family came here yeah. and then you were born. Like, yeah. Because there's so few people who were born and raised here anyway. So I feel like that has to be you might be like maybe one of 15. Maybe. Well, how do we find three. that out? Right. <laughs> Where do we pull the demographics, statistics, know. census information for that? I, I'm sure. You the, should know. I'm sure the current administration's figured it out. I don't know. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's somebody who has these answers. I I remember kind of going back to the stereotypes of immigrants. I remember my uh, aunt and one set of aunt and uncle that moved here with their three kids. Mm-hmm. 
So it's a family of five ours and a family of five theirs all living in the same house hmm. because they came, they moved here and they lived with us for, I don't remember how many months it was. And they were all in kind of like the back bedroom mm-hmm. until they got established and made their way. But we were like the stereotype of, you see for specifically sure. Mexican mm-hmm. families all, you know, piling into one house. That's the stereotype. Mm-hmm. So yet that was us. Yeah. And I think that that's something, especially like in our community, because we don't really see other races of immigrants here mm-hmm. in Las Vegas, that we constantly think of that yeah, yeah. as being the stereotype. Immigrants and are Mexicans, yeah, period, right? And forgetting that there's so many other immigrants. Mm-hmm. And I mean, even just you, and you're still fairly young. So I am fairly it young. It wasn't that long ago. Um, so it seems like you lived a pretty modest life then growing up i would say so i think specific because you asked about my mom specifically so i focused in on that more so than my dad no but my dad's very much alive very well very busy still yeah uh lately buys houses fixes them up and sells them that's how he keeps himself busy absolutely yeah Yeah. no we do family dinners around everyone's birthday typically Mm -hmm. sometimes we miss but other than that we see each other at various community events or he comes over. Mm-hmm. We're all at my brother's or my sister's. All right. So I recently heard an interview of entrepreneur and motivational speaker Gary Vaynerchuk. You just you know heard him? about Gary Vaynerchuk? No, but this interview is what I heard recently. Um, so Gary V. Gary V. Is who he's known to. Immigrant. Um, mil- his millions of followers. He is like, I checked on Instagram today. Uh, he's 7.5 million followers on Instagram, which wow. is, you know, he's not doing it half naked. He's actually like mm-hmm. giving the good words of motivation and showing what you can achieve if you just work hard and think outside of the box. Um, but he said something that really hit home with me. And every time that I've brought it up with somebody else, they can really relate to this. Um, when he was being interviewed about being a dad and he said that he took the experience of being a child in a family to be a better father, allowing his childhood experience to show him who he wanted to be and not want to be as mm-hmm. a father. And I thought that was so deep because especially, you know, at this stage in my life and I'm newly married and we're talking about having babies and I'm like, you know, there's, I want to be a, a great parent. How do you prepare to be the best parent when you don't really have experience of being a parent? But then to hear somebody say, you might not have experience being a parent, but you have experience of being parented Mm -hmm. and you have experience of being a child in a family. So therefore you could really take, you know, pros and cons from your own childhood experience and put those into how you father or you mother and you are father of three, Nathan, Ava and Lily and Nathan who raps. I didn't Mm -hmm. know that until (laughs) just now. Um, They all rap. (laughs) They all be boxed too. Even I Lily. I think you need to like. Can you? What's it called? Like Kid Bop? There's Is this like it's a group like band. A, yes, but the, it's like a ch- it's a channel on XM Radio that they change all like pop songs to like. Oh, kids kid friendly. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. You should maybe put them on to it. Maybe. Might not be a bad idea. Um, but, but it's not actually kids singing. It's kids bop, which is. Are you sure it's not kids singing? Listen, I drove them to school this morning. <laughs> I said, "What do you guys want to listen to?" Nathan's upset, throwing a fit mm-hmm. in the back. So I just picked what I wanted, which was Michael Jackson radio on Pandora. He got upset saying, I don't want to hear this right now. Yeah. So <laughs> I snapped at him. I said, you're the one being the party pooper here. We're all having a good time. 
And then I said, Ava, what do you want to listen to? And she said, Kids Bop. So I'm very familiar. That's so with funny. What is I on Kids Bop? Kids the whole time. No, so the first song covers. that came on was Uptown Funk, mm-hmm. but it was a kid, not like amateur kids that are yeah. recording stuff and uploading it. I mean, we don't. It doesn't sound very amateur to me. It's a very. He's practiced that before. If not, he's oh, a the natural. Thing, what, yes. So what you're talking about is. Before we started, I played for you and for Ryan, who's in my office. <laughs> the last episode that I recorded with Shoam was in my backyard, and I had all the equipment set up. That's nice. And we were getting the kids all, you know, dessert and put to bed and all that. But before they had dessert and went to bed, they saw the equipment. Ava put on the, mm-hmm. the headphones. <laughs> Nathan put on the headphones, and they started talking into the microphones that you and I are talking into now. Mm-hmm. So I hit record without them knowing. And they, they start out with rapping to each other. That's hilarious. It's so funny. They went on for a half hour. I was so am- happy that I captured it. That is amazing. We are way off track. Yeah, we are. We're talking about being a parent. Yes. So well, I guess we're not off track. No, we're not that far. Um, You are a father of three. Yes. Nathan, Ava, and Lily. Uh, were there certain things that were part of your childhood that you wanted to incorporate in your kids' lives? I'll tell you where that shows up mostly is when I think about how good they have it mm-hmm. compared to not that I had it bad because I feel like I had it good. Mm-hmm. So how much even better they have it now. Mm-hmm. I think about maybe they shouldn't have it that good. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a, of a, of an example, but I can't really, that that's really mostly what comes to mind. I mean, I think that makes sense, though. I mean, you're first generation American and now your kids are living a pretty decent life. (laughs) Yeah. So they live in Summerlin. (laughs) I grew up in Green Valley. Horrible. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So I could totally understand that. And I wonder what your dad thinks about that, too. Like, I wonder. This is I did this and this is what's happened. And I'm sure he's prideful. You know, it has to be something to be proud of. Yeah, we all we're all doing well, and our kids are all. Yeah, I guess we talk about this too. My brother is probably mostly. I admire the way that my brother is raising his kids, and uh, very strict about TV time mm-hmm. and device time, and uh, encourages them to play and play outside, and and I think to read now, as they're as they're getting to the age where they can, whereas. Again, I can't say that anything. I don't want to give off the the sense that there's anything bad or wrong because mm-hmm. it's all very good. But when I think about how I was brought up and how they're being brought up, yeah, they're they're doing fine. And there's there's pride in that as well. Like my kids will say things and I'm like, damn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the other night. So my son is um, at the age where he can read really fluently. His vocabulary has always been impressive at any age. Mm -hmm. Like when you benchmarked him against others, very clear, very articulate all the time. Um, But he can read both English and Hebrew pretty well. I had to film him two nights ago for his Hebrew teacher reading a passage in a book. Mm -hmm. I can read Hebrew. Okay. He's, Mm -hmm. he's maybe a grade away from reading better than I can read. Wow. So stuff like that. Yeah. That is impressive. Uh, I, I think I was 10 the first time I got on a bike maybe to maybe that age and it was here's how it went it was um i don't know where they got all these bikes from my uncle had a furniture store and he would go to estate sales and and just buy a bunch of stuff so everyone got a bike because they were all these different bikes and we put them together like i had a mongoose frame and i took the wheels from this and (laughs) 
So I remember my first bike was this mongoose. Yeah, it was basically a chop shop. (laughs) And we were crafty, Mm -hmm. mostly because I'm not crafty. If anyone Mm -hmm. knows me now and and they hear me say that, they would laugh. (laughs) I'm not a tool guy. I'm not a crafty dude in that way. But back then we were we would all put our bike together and I had my bike. And the way I learned how to ride the bike is I got on the bike and I rode it Mm -hmm. and I fell. The hell if I'm going to have Nathan ride a bike, just get on the bike and ride away. Mm -hmm. I'm behind him holding the thing. Yeah, (laughs) because it traumatized you from falling. No, it wasn't (laughs) even that. It's just. Yeah. Part of me thinks like just get up and ride it. Mm -hmm. The other part of me is like, I'm not going to let him fall. For sure. It's just did different in parenting. I, I remember asking Danielle a year or two ago. You know, we live across the street, essentially, from downtown Summerlin. Mm-hmm. You walk out of the community gate, you go a block, and you're at the intersection where downtown Summerlin is. Mm-hmm. So I asked her, what age do you think we're going to be okay with our kids riding their bikes or walking to, to the mall, to Dave & Buster's? What's 16, 18 years yeah, old? They're comfortable with that. <laughs> I would go from, we lived on Green Valley Parkway between Warm Springs and Sunset. Mm -hmm. At the time, the grocery store at Warm Springs wasn't there. Maybe it was there, and then there's the train tracks. Mm -hmm. And now, I mean, it goes on for quite a while. There was nothing beyond beyond those train tracks. Mm -hmm. We would go into the desert, and I don't know how many hours we'd be gone. For sure. And that my parents would trust us to do that. That was normal for them. No big deal. Mm-hmm. My dad tells stories when they were a kid, how they would go from one side of Israel to the other and come back yeah. before it was nighttime. But there's no way yeah. our kids are going to walk to downtown Summerlin I know, before they're 16 or 18 years old. You said that and my eyes got big because I was like thinking of your kids and I'm like, they can't ride their bike to <laughs> in my head. I was but like, you think about how old were you? Street. How old were you when you got on your town, where? Boulder City. Boulder City. I know, yeah. but still, how old were you when you were just allowed to roam free? Well, my mom was really strict about us crossing the big street, which is Buchanan, and there might be a thousand cars a day. <laughs> That's, that was a level of, mm-hmm. of Is that a lot of cars? No. Oh. <laughs> okay, in the retail world, <laughs> um, <laughs> there's probably... 35,000 vehicles. So you were allowed to go. You just can't cross Buchanan. Yeah. No. Yeah, so so like, th- those are, those are some of the, the differences. Neighborhood, but you couldn't go on any major streets. That was, but I mean, and I, then coming in t- and sometimes still when I see it, like at an intersection, a busier intersection and a kid's like walking his bike across the street. I'm like, what's go- happening right now? Like, mm-hmm. where's your mom? Like, are you okay? Like this is, a- I would cross green Valley. Green Valley Parkway on my way to TCBY on Sunset and Green Valley Parkway. Uh-huh. Or we would go over to the library there and like climb in the, in this, you know, a little serpent statue. Mm-hmm. Any more specific, like let's, I want to get a little bit further into this though. Like, is there a certain thing that you really loved that your parents did when you were a child? Like, uh, like for me, I, I loved that we had family dinner every night. Um, that's something that I really want to bring into my family, I think it's, or it was really important. I mm-hmm. think it kept us all engaged with each other and what was going on. And it was a, a place to sometimes even be mad about. You know, if you were fighting with one of your siblings or mad at your mom for grounding you, you still had to go and face it. You couldn't just avoid the situation. We weren't allowed to do that. Like, are there any of those type of things that were in your childhood that you were, when, you know, Danielle was pregnant with mm-hmm. Nathan, your first child, that you were like, okay, we're definitely going to do this. You know, you said we were brought up modest, and we were, but it 
never felt that way. There mm-hmm. wasn't anything I don't think that we weren't um, provided for or with some specific examples as much as I hated it at the time. And I remember the fights when my dad would wake us up on the weekends to go help him at a job site. Mm-hmm. Looking back, those were fun times. Or I appreciate now that I did those things. Mm-hmm. That's one. The other thing I remember, there wasn't a He-Man doll at Kmart that I didn't have. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I attached to at a young age and my mom knew it. And whenever she could, however she could, mm-hmm. there was always a, a the next He-Man doll that came out I had. Yeah. We would get together for holidays all as a family. Mm-hmm. Cousins, aunts, uncles. Uh, I think back on those times and it was the same kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Fights doesn't matter. Running around, uh, playing together. You know, I look back at pictures and th- th- those were cool times. That was a cool thing to bring us all together mm-hmm. as cousins and aunts and uncles around the holidays. Do you bring the kids to work ever? Yeah, we have MDL group has a lot of events for families. Uh-huh. So they come here. That's awesome. We have do they so like Carol. It? Let me brag on Carol. She's they do like it. She's an easy one to brag on. Yeah. Well, this is a cool <laughs> thing to brag on specifically because it just happened also. I don't know when I was asking Desiree, who also works here. How long has Carol been doing this? I've been here almost seven years. Desiree has been here for, I think she said 15 years or something like that. And she, Carol's been doing this longer than even Desiree has been here. Every Christmas, she brings all the kids, and they do a tree trimming party. So they they gather in our lobby. The tree's up. That's amazing. Everyone gets these little ornaments. They dec- The kids decorate the tree. However they decorate it, that's how it's left. Mm-hmm. They go in the kitchen. They decorate cookies. Carol's mom for years would make the cookies. Now Amy's mom makes the cookies, Nancy. Oh, Nani has the best sugar cookies in the world. Sorry. No problem. So they (laughs) they decorate the cookies. Then Carol gets a phone call from Santa. Mm -hmm. Nobody can sell Santa like Carol. Let me tell you. She has this this past one was uh, Friday a week a Uh week ago. Thirty six kids following her around looking for because Carol got a phone call from Santa saying he's outside. So they go out of our back door. Carol runs them around the parking lot. There's all this uh, reindeer poop. That's that they find someone leaves <laughs> big raisins and so i'm telling you carol sells it she looks up in the sky oh do you see him do you see him oh look look at look there's rudolph <laughs> you know one of the mccarran planes flying over with the mm-hmm. flashing red lights she brings him in through the front door and around the tree is a gift for every single one of the kids that's amazing i almost just got teary-eyed that's really sweet. no it's nuts yeah. and she's been doing this for desiree thinks 18 years it might even be longer so that's yeah. one of the things that all the kids come here mm-hmm. and for my kids specifically, you know, they went from being shy to they'll just go into my office. Now, I don't see them when they're here. They're running around with everybody else's kid because they all know each other. For sure. So they do like coming here. They have all the stuff they like to do specifically when they're here. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's really cool. No, that is great. Um, and then on the other side of my original question, mm-hmm. is there anything that was in your childhood that you chose immediately not to do with your kids? Nothing really that jumps out. You know, the funny one, both Danielle and I were like, well, we are, we are not going to let our kids have devices like that. Yeah. They are not <laughs> going to be watching their uh-huh. iPads at dinner and they're going to be behaved. That went out the window quickly. For sure. I could quickly. see that happening for me too. I don't think they're not really. No. Okay. Again, I don't think I had a bad life or a, a, a troublesome upbringing. Yeah. 
No, and I don't think it has to be troublesome. I think that there's just, you know, certain things mm. that you're like, uh, I didn't really love that. And this didn't really work for me. And, you know, um, like for my my own experience, mm. like my like growing up, it wasn't like um, we, we were raised really strict. So, well, my mom would be like, if you're ever in a situation and you shouldn't be driving and you need to <laughs> have someone call or come get you and like, don't get in someone's car, have them come get you. I did that once and was grounded for like six months. Like, so <laughs> I was like, wait, this is not, this wasn't the deal. Like this wasn't what we signed up for. So I felt like that's one thing that I've thought about too. It's like, okay, well, if I'm going to say that, then I've got to like stick to mm. it. I want my kids to really feel like they can call me if they need me and not be in trouble. I mean, to a certain extent. There's one thing that came to mind when you were giving me your example. And it's kind of a two-point thing. One is as much as you think you're not like your parents, mm-hmm. there there are things that I do. It's like, wow, that's just like my dad. Or, whoa, that was just like my mom. This one's not my mom or dad. It was more of when we were around other family. The unit of cousins, there was a thing where you just, like, get on people. Mm-hmm. Little annoying pokes. Like, oh, for sure. I think I once made a comment I saw Tina Tur- Tina Turner on TV, and I said, I like her, or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, her hair was big. So I don't know what it was. Mm-hmm. Every family gathering after that, I remember them teasing me about Tina Turner. <laughs> it was the teasing. Yeah. And the teasing came in so many forms and, sh- and shapes and sizes. And I noticed myself doing this, most more so with Nathan than Ava and Lily. Mm-hmm. And I catch myself, and I, I try to knock it off. Or if I'm doing it, to make sure that I'm I'm that I'm reading Nathan in a way that he knows that it's this is a playful moment, not a For sure. I'm trying to tease you to hurt your feelings moment. Yeah. Which that line can get crossed pretty easily and pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Especially if he's tired or hungry. Yeah, for sure. And then <laughs> I, I or if they're like also get back hungry, off. So yeah. I get that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, let's let's move on a little bit. I want to talk um, a little bit about Danielle. So I was gonna kind of use the same question lines, but yeah, I mean, is was there anything that you felt, you know, as your parents and viewing your parents' marriage that you're like, you know, this is really important. I want to have this aspect in my own marriage mm-hmm. or I didn't really love this. So you really, your marriage is just. I don't think I've ever thought about it like that until you just asked me the question right here. Interesting. You know, your, your wife's like, she's a therapist. What's yeah. <laughs> She says I'm well adjusted. I'm like these are. Real. She did say that when I. <laughs> she told me that a few years ago, and I I yeah. like that, so I just ran with it. I tell yeah. people that usually after when they ask, "Oh, what is your? Does your wife work? Yeah, she works. What does she do? Marriage and family therapy. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's what I. Oh, mm-hmm. and then depending on what reaction I want, I say, "Oh, she says I'm well adjusted, so we're fine." <laughs> or I say like, yeah, "The good news is I could screw up my kids as badly as I want. She'll just fix them." For, yeah, that's that's a. I mean, that's a bonus. <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely a bonus. So nothing big that you were like, you know, no. um, I mean, for example, like Josh, my husband, um, he opens my door every single time. And first, it's like a lost, just, I don't even know what you would call it. I mean, chivalry mm-hmm. is lost when it comes to that, especially in the generation or um, the men in my generation. And so when he first did it, I was 
blown away. And then he was like, it was honestly something my dad always did for my mom. And it was something that I've really respected. And so I told myself that I would do that for my wife. Like that was just something I would always do. And so even when I interact with his parents and I see it, like it's kind mm-hmm. of like heartwarming, like, oh, you saw this and you loved it and you wanted to make sure that you brought that into your marriage. Nothing. Yeah. So when you go to open the car door, (laughs) the car door specifically, not so much like when you're going into a building that Mm -hmm. I naturally will open the door if I'm in the position to. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's awkward to run in front and all that. (laughs) But you go to open the car door and I think about, well, she's so independent. Is this going to be a I can open my own damn door kind of a thing. Yeah. And we have these playful conversations often where, I mean, and at first it was. Playful being the operative word. Yeah. (laughs) I was just going to say at first it wasn't playful. He would tell me to be like, I know you're independent and I know you can do all these things, but I'm just trying to be here to Mm -hmm. make your life a little easier. And it took a while for me to let up on on a few of those things. I'm like, I can open my own doors. I know how to open my door. And then now I'm like old school lady that I was like raised in the fifties. <laughs> I like stand, yeah. <laughs> I stand before the door and wait for it to be open. <laughs> it's horrible. It's a good adjustment. So, um, so moving forward, I really wanted to focus the first part of this interview on what made you, you. And I spoke to your wife, uh, a couple of your friends, <laughs> some colleagues. Oh boy. And I went back on my own experiences with you to prepare for the podcast. Going back to our first meeting at the failed pork taco lunch, I left that meeting and really had no read on you. (laughs) Didn't know if I was right for the committee, didn't know anything more about you, and wasn't really sure if you felt like any of my jokes were funny because you weren't really responding. And my initial reaction was, huh, I'm slightly socially awkward. And then... (laughs) And then I was All like, right. or I just really offended him with the pork tacos. And then <laughs> and now, you know, in my older age, in retrospect, uh, that interra- like that interaction with you is exactly who you are. And you're not I'm socially, socially awkward. awkward, but you're a fantastic listener. You like Ooh, you have. This, I was not expecting that. Yeah. Oh wait, just don't you worry. I'm gonna make you blush just as much as Brian Martin does. <laughs> I was. Um, it wait, was <laughs> Ryan makes me blush, or the way that Ryan no, Martin blushes. No, Ryan Martin blushes all the time. Yeah, like, he turns red like a solo cup. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I like that one. I like it. <laughs> um, it was con- consistently felt and said about you that you have a gift of listening. Um to somebody and truly being present while in a conversation and the old saying that I have not yet mastered is you have one mouth and two ears for a reason. And it's definitely something that you excel in. And looking back at that interaction, I was thinking, you know, I, I felt you were listening to me the whole time and you were definitely present, but I didn't really know anything about you. And this is what kind of started the whole idea of me interviewing you for podcast because at that gala that we discussed is mm-hmm. you um you asked I forget what you asked me but you asked me something very like specific of, of an update on my life and I was like you know so much about me and I know nothing about you and obviously anyone who knows me knows that I'm a talker I'm working on listening more but I think that you're a very rare person in, in being a listener and I think that that's what makes you the leader that you are You have the ability of listening to someone's goals and coaching them through the process and motivating them and challenging them and staying engaged. 
And I've personally always have been impressed with your follow through and your attention to detail. And, and I can give just a couple of examples of mine and your relationship. And you've sent me two different books. I don't know if you've realized this, but and, and it's just off of a random conversation that we'll have in passing about, you know, what I'm trying to focus on or what I'm struggling on. And then I get a book. And then I get like some words of encouragement. And then the next time I see you, which could be four months from now, you ask me about that. And I, I think that that's a very, very special quality that you have. And Danielle shared that when you are at home, you are exactly that with your kids too, that you are 100% with the kids and are able to be that with them individually too, even if you don't get home until six o'clock at night and you only have time to spend with them until bedtime, that you somehow are so genuine with the time that you spend with them. And <laughs> so I'm doing better than I thought I was. <laughs> and she, she really applauded you for being such a, a, a fantastic husband and a great father for being able to really do that with your time, which I think it, it's a gift. I don't think a lot of people are able to, especially with now we have so many distractions. We have a distraction that's in our hand constantly, which is a phone. Mm -hmm. And I even find myself sometimes when I'm at my office and someone comes into my office where I'm talking to them and then I like see an email pop up and I like start mm -hmm. typing. I'm like, you're I'm guilty so of that. rude. And I'm like, yeah, I'm like, you're just a rude person. Like give these people the attention that they deserve. And, and I think that you've, you've really done well with doing that. And um, when I spoke to a few of your colleagues and staff, they all shared how patient you are and that you consistently work for the common benefit, which is also something that's really rare in our industry because we're salespeople. And oftentimes you have to kind of be looking out for what's best for you and what's paying your bills too because you have a family to support and you can't always be looking out for the guy next to you. But I think that that's a, a very well-paid compliment from the people that you work with. And I think you should be honored. To I am. <laughs> it, it really Thank is. Thank you. And now that, you know, we know where you came from, how you applied your own learned lessons into your life, like that play on words, you've been making a few changes after five years of overseeing the brokers at MDL Group. You're also back in the brokerage game and brokering some deals. Why the change? So I think it's, first of all, thank you. There's so much in what you just said that is on my mind <laughs> right now. One about the being present. I appreciate those comments. I think I'm failing horribly at the device in my hand thing, which has become, in my observation, a behavior mm -hmm. that and a bad habit that I need to figure out how to break because I don't think it's, it's good and it's healthy. Mm -hmm. Always having the phone and the, I mean, it's, it's almost automatic. The impulse, I mean, the phone's out of my pocket in my hand and I'm somehow on some yeah. email text, For sure. social media. And I, it's almost, it's uh, involuntary in mm -hmm. a way. So that's good that I'm not totally failing in that, in that regard. Well, and you're not alone in that. Trust me. I, <laughs> I know. And, I, and you know what I'm saying that also, because I don't, th I think this is a, a big problem for sure. A big problem, but that's one thing. All right. So back to the, the professional thing, let me just kind of explain what, what that is and, and then why the change. So in our industry, 
typically you get into brokerage, you're an independent contractor, you're a salesperson, you go out, you chase deals, you do deals, you get some clients, you do a good job, you build a practice. And sometimes, not often, sometimes you rise to a point in an organization or the company where they say, wow, you're pretty good at this. You should manage the office or manage the sales team or manage the organization or what have you. My move into management came in the recessionary times. Mm -hmm. Jared and I were partners, as we've talked about. We were both doing transactional sales brokerage work. Mm -hmm. I had the opportunity at NAI, at the new company we're moving to, to spend half of my time doing that and half of my time managing the office. So the half moved to full-time, and then I got into management. When we came to MDL Group, we surveyed the marketplace, and it was clear that there were no brokerages with what's called a non-producing broker or a non-competing broker, Mm -hmm. meaning the broker is there solely to run the operation and to sell into the sales team. So if you bring in work, other people get to do it, and you don't participate in commissions. We did that because we felt like it would be a competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. What we learned over a few years is that a certain grade of broker doesn't care of of sales agent. Mm -hmm. They don't care if their broker is competing or not competing. Mm -hmm. What they care about is that if they are doing their own deals, it's done in fair play. What they care about is that they're not cherry picking the best deals and only the scraps are left behind. Mm -hmm. What they care about more than either of those two things is that you're not putting your hand in, in my pocket where it doesn't belong. So when we realize that, that the certain grade of broker, they don't value a non-producing broker. Mm -hmm. That was one thing that sort of lodged that loose. The other thing is when you're coaching somebody and you're not doing it yourself, Mm -hmm. you either become irrelevant very, very quickly or you're not as effective. Because if I tell you, do as I say, it's different than do as I do. Yeah. Now there's. Maybe we'll get to it. There's a balance to doing and leading, which I'm still learning the balance and mm-hmm. the groove. But those those couple of th- the third thing, I guess. So the first one is a certain category of broker doesn't care if I'm competing or not, as long as it's it's all above board and fair play, and I'm not getting in their way or sticking my hand in their pocket. The other one was being able to coach more effectively because I'm going through the same pain. The third thing is I missed it and I loved it. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, you notice about yourself what gets you really excited and really motivated. And I have never been that excited when the check comes in. Mm-hmm. That's cool. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. And when you deposit it and you see your bank balance goes up, that's exciting. Mm-hmm. What gets me excited is when you put everything into a proposal because you did the needs assessment with the client, you really heard them, and you believe you have the right solutions. And you put yourself out there against your competitors, which our industry, and specifically this market, there are really good brokers in this market. You can't say anything bad about the overwhelming majority of them. There are a few where you can (laughs) comfortably talk badly about them. But for the most part, we have a really good real estate community and everyone's a good broker. Mm -hmm. So when you go and you compete and you put yourself in there and you get the email back that says, we've decided to go with you, boom, that's (laughs) when I kicked the table. Yeah. That's when I scream down the hall and everyone's like, oh, my God, what happened in Haim's office? Sure. That's what gets me fired up. The other thing is the chase of it all, mm-hmm. which is, you know, I've been coached now many different agents of all different styles. Typically, they don't like that part. Mm-hmm. I do like that part. I like the staying on it and the chasing it and the persistence part of it. What my One of my problems was when I was doing that and then 
it finally came through the door and I handed it off, the ownership goes with it too. Mm-hmm. And I didn't like that so much. I wanted to stay invested in, I made a promise. Stay now we're, through. now we're going to live up to the promise. Yeah. So one thing I don't, I don't have any transaction right now that I could think about where somebody in our office is not working on it with me. Mm-hmm. Because again, the point for me is not to be a greedy broker and make all this money. That doesn't move my, my own inner needle. Mm-hmm. The point, there's a few points into you know what I'm doing now, but the point is bring in the business and fulfill the promise and then use that to help coach up everybody else. I like it. And also, I think that it kind of goes back to what I think I've uncovered about you in <laughs> my interview. <laughs> With your investigative journalism? <laughs> yes. Is that from it's, Zoolander? I, I think so, actually. <laughs> nice. Well done. Well done. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think that that also shows your, I mean, your dedication to the follow through is really starting something and seeing it through the yeah. end. And I think that you, you've been able to be such a gift in so many other people. So it's nice to see you be able to do that again for yourself. Thanks. No problem. It's been fun. So why now? You know, again, what we look at, it's a good thing to question. It goes back to your parenting thing about mm-hmm. what kind of parent you want to be. You go to where did all this start? Why, why did we even say that I was going to be a non-producing broker? Mm-hmm. And we said that because we thought it was the right thing to do at the time mm-hmm. for a specific result. It didn't produce that result because we found out that the people that we want here, they don't care. Yeah. And in they fact, in fact yeah. they, if you do it in the right way, they want you out there. Mm-hmm. Because you'll bring in more business that they can benefit from. Agreed. So you look at why did we even do this? Is it working? No, let's make the adjustment. But the bigger thing, you know, as I was really thinking through this and having conversations around it, it was Galit that really opened my eyes. Because I went through this whole like explanation and we sort of got to the end and she said, wait a second, you want to do this? I'm like, I really want to do this. Why don't you just say that? Huh? I want to do this. She goes, then you should do it. <laughs> Life is short. You should do it. If this is what you want to do, you should be happy. Oh, sure. great. So that was one of the reasons why the change. So is this why there was a drop in episodes from season one? Yeah, so we alluded to 20 this. 20 episodes to season two with 12 episodes. And honestly, I've decided that for seasons, season two, I'm really only counting eight episodes because the other ones were nay up. Right. Yeah, which you those can't. are recaps. No, they all count. I mean... They oh, count, there's so much in this answer, too. You <laughs> talked about Gary V. Yeah. Let's bring him back because he's a reason why I even started this stuff to begin with. Interesting. I didn't know that. It's probably three, four years ago now. Someone said, hey, you should check out this guy, Gary V. So I did. And I listened to him every day for probably 45, 60 days. He puts out that much content. Wow. And there was a specific keynote that he gave to some auto association in Ireland, I think, that was on his podcast where he laid out the way of the world. And we actually mm-hmm. talked about it. Mm-hmm. One of the things he said is that um, you know, t- technology changes and cable came out and then this DVR thing came out and then the ability to record mm-hmm. TV shows and fast forward through commercials was a thing. Yeah. The fast forwarding through commercials has gone down. And the reason it's gone down is because you're sitting on your couch, you've got the remote in one hand, you've got your, t- your phone on your chest and the second the commercial comes on, you pick up your phone and start scrolling Instagram. That's crazy. Yeah. So he really open my eyes to where things are going. And mm-hmm. I really, I believe in what he talks about as For far sure. as what he, t- you know, his big thing is where is attention. So applying this to our business, I started a blog 
there's another person, Seth Godin, mm-hmm. big marketer, 19 books or whatever it is, uh, t- teaches marketing principles. He's the one that talks about Zig Ziglar and be a meaningful, specific, not a wandering generality. He, he talks about create something so good that people would miss it if it were gone. So I had a problem to solve as a salesperson. The problem was if I open this drawer behind me, there are stacks and stacks of business cards. One of the things I do is I meet people, I go to events, I create connections. How do I stay in touch with those people? Don't have an answer for that. So Gary V says, just start. Start with something and see where it goes. Seth Godin says, create something so good people would miss it if it were gone. Gary V says, document, don't create. Just document what you're doing, don't create. I can go on and on and on. But all this came together with, I am a managing broker of a company. Therefore, I go to a lot of events more than you would go to as a sales agent. Mm-hmm. I go to S, uh, NAOP breakfasts, as you know, SIOR lunches, Corfac International Conferences. I get to hear a lot of different people, thought leaders and whatnot. So one of the things that I can do is share my takeaways from those events. So I started out with an email to the company, just the 40 people that are on the all staff at AMDO Mm -hmm. group.com email. And then I posted it on a blog because I learned how to do that. That was pretty cool. (laughs) And then I started listening to a lot of podcasts and I thought I'm going to do this. So I started a podcast, which is the audio version of the blog, of the blog, but instead of events, it's people Mm -hmm. that I've had takeaways from. Mm hmm. And then that even evolved to the recap, the takeaways from the NAOP breakfast. So if you even look back further, I ha- I ri- I've written one blog this year. I think it was in February, maybe two. So really? that has dropped off because I have a different outlet, which is the podcast. Mm-hmm. The one-on-one conversation of um, people that I've had takeaways from, that has dropped off because I've added the NAOP breakfast. Mm-hmm. And in a way, they're different products. It just comes through the same way. Mm -hmm. The one-on-one interview with Angelica, you can listen to 20 years from now. Mm -hmm. It's long, first of all. So the (laughs) format, it's it's not just you, but all of them. (laughs) They're long form, Mm -hmm. which is a different kind of attention that you have to give it. For sure. But but for your attention, you're getting something much more out of it than just reading headlines at the stoplight. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's long form and it's evergreen. 20 years from now, the things that you talk about will still be relevant for whoever's listening. For sure. The NAOP breakfast takeaways is short form. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's anyone that's longer than 30 minutes. No. Yeah. So that's a, you can listen to the whole thing start to finish on your morning commute or your afternoon commute. I love those podcasts. And it's timely. Yeah. Yeah. If you missed it, you can hear it and heard and, and catch what you missed. For the most part, there's there's no replacing actually being there and hearing it for yourself, but there's something. Mm-hmm. And it's also more relevant and timely because that's the nature of that program. For sure. So my my conscience is in a, in a way cleared because I didn't stop. I definitely tapered off one of them, mm-hmm. but I added the other one. Okay. However, the crux of what you're asking, yeah. One of the things that's mostly on my mind right now is you can't keep adding without taking away for sure and what do i take away so you're right i added that i'm also chasing and doing deals Mm -hmm. i still have all of the obligations of a managing broker at this company (laughs) (laughs) so one of the things that did get taken away because i didn't focus on it as much this year was the one-on-one conversations of takeaways Mm -hmm. 
So with that said, what does season three look like for you? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had an answer for you. I go through um, through spurts about I, I in my mind have mapped out how to monetize this whole thing. And it could be something that I'm not even involved with anymore where there's a takeaways blog that other people write into kind of like a Huffington post mm -hmm. where you can write a takeaways. And I give you what I give you is the avenue on which to post it, yep. the format on which to express yourself and your thoughts and where to post it. And even, you know, this podcast I've thought about, uh, it, it becomes a speaker series all under the brand takeaways, mm -hmm. takeaways, the book, it goes on and on. And then you sort of do a gut check and ask yourself, what are my priorities? What are my objectives? What are my goals? Mm -hmm. And is this the right time and the right season in my life for this? For sure. So season three, I have one episode banked, a little, okay. little teaser. Ooh. I recorded an episode with Rod Martin, okay. who's a partner at Majestic. Yep. That'll come out in January. I have another one tentatively. Well, we're going back and forth on scheduling. Mm -hmm. Someone you know too, Dan Doherty. Oh, I love Doherty. Yeah. So then it's just about me focusing my time and attention and and continuing it for sure i have to tell you my favorite story about doherty really quick all right uh you can use this oh good in the interview we won't tell him about it so uh, when i was <laughs> when i was at collier's uh we had a national conference in san diego and I decided to carpool with Doherty from San from Las Vegas <laughs> to San Diego. And at first I was a, a little concerned because I'm like, what the hell am I going to talk to? Carpool, you guys are all in the same car. Yeah, just Doherty and, and I drive into San Diego. Yep, for the conference. So I'm like thinking, what the hell are we going to talk to? And he brings snacks. He's like well prepared. Doherty did. Did you sit in the back or the front? Front. <laughs> So the whole time he's basically on conference calls the whole way there and we're talking here and there, but I was dying laughing because, um, we, <laughs> we were just like getting into the San Diego, um, like area and he takes this, I, maybe you shouldn't share this cause he might be one of his clients, <laughs> but <laughs> I, won't, I won't name you can't names. can't stop the story yeah. now. <laughs> I was just like, yeah, Let well, it this fly. actually might be bad. Um, but he takes this call and he's on it with his team. And there you're listing this conference call and it's a landlord and they want Doherty to take the listing and and they're going on and on and almost kind of playing this game. Well, we're talking to other brokers and we don't know if you guys are really the right team and we're, you know, we're trying mm. to figure this out. And um and Doherty goes, Well, here's the facts is you have a B property in a C location, I don't think it's worth my team's time. So you can either give it to us or not give it to us. Like we're not heard about it. And the, the guy just like stops speaking. Mm -hmm. And I like look at Doherty cause I'm like, Whoa, you went super jackass real quick. And I had, and, <laughs> and Doherty's holding his phone, um, and like pointing at it, like, watch, watch, watch. And, um, all of a sudden there's like a, a good pause where, for me, especially at that point in, in my career, I would have been super nervous. Like, yeah. you're not big enough to pull this off. Don't say this. And <laughs> and then the guy goes, all right, so we'll sign the listing agreement and send it over. And hopefully you guys can the get your back. marketing up. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> this is he did absolutely the mind blowing. And uh, then he also said something hilarious to me because we, we had just driven by this really beautiful retail center. And I was like, one day I'm going to list properties <laughs> like that. And he was like, no, you don't want, you don't want listings like that. And I'm like, why? It's so pretty. And he was like, 
pretty listings are like pretty girls. They're high maintenance with little return. <laughs> and I really feel that's true. <laughs> so, I'm going to ask him about so that. So those are, those are my Doherty takeaways from Doherty in my life. But moving along, so we kind of have an idea of maybe where season three is at least starting. Yes. We don't really know what the future. I will continue holds. with the Nayot breakfasts because okay. they're in, integrated within you know, where I am and how I spend my, I basically pack up the equipment, go to the Nayot breakfast. I'm on the Nayot board mm-hmm. and I'm on the programs committee. So I will be going to the breakfast next year still, and I'll take my stuff and continue to record those. And it, I will do my bet, my very best, but I, it's not something I want to stop. Mm-hmm. So I will continue to do conversations as I have the extra energy and effort to put into it. For sure. So with all of this, and you kind of touched on it too, how do you balance it all? I mean, I'm really trying to wrap my head around that right now with marriage, thinking about kids, running a business, um, being involved in nonprofits. You know, there's so many things to do and so little time to do them. Mm. And talking to your wife and your friends and your colleagues and them all saying that you have this ability to be present and genuine. I mean, I, I honestly feel that that is my biggest fear right now is not having enough of me to give to all of my Mm. priorities. Do you, do you have time for yourself? Like how, how are you balancing this? Do you, do you, I, I would say so. I think my big goal for next year is to reintroduce consistent exercise into my life which also has been absent spotty here and there mm-hmm. i can relate yeah so <laughs> there that there is something missing which i need to figure out how to put it in and it's it's a daunting thought mm-hmm. for me as a, as i think about time there you know priorities change that's one thing this is now me addressing your specific comment about where you are uh, where i am and where I was and, and what I've learned, where you are, you just got married and you're on the doorstep of having a family of your own. Mm-hmm. Priorities change where you've spent your time won't be as important for you anymore with certain things. Other things you'll find that they are mm-hmm. important to you. Your capacity, though, also changes hmm. and you have no idea how much capacity you have <laughs> until you f- figure out how much capacity you have. You know, you have one kid and you think, oh, my God, this is <laughs> crazy and I'm never going to sleep again and all this. And then you start sleeping again and then you have a second kid. I had a freak out moment with our third kid. Let me just. So we had Nathan. Our lives changed completely. Mm-hmm. You don't sleep. Then they sleep and <laughs> you start sleeping. Then you realize when they start walking how easy things were when they were just a baby. Uh-huh. You look back on that like. <laughs> Holy shit. For sure. It was so easy. <laughs> Why was I so freaked out and stressed out? I used to put them there in either the swing or on the rug or whatever, yeah. and they don't move. <laughs> you know where they are. You have a moment to go to the bathroom if you need to. When they start walking, you don't walk for two years until they're stable and they're not yeah. going to smash their face on the table <laughs> for or something. Sure. Then you have a second one, and you realize one is so easy, even with the walking. Mm-hmm. Ava, we don't remember. This is like the middle child thing. Mm-hmm. She was, I don't remember the, there was no pain around that. Nathan, I remember some stuff around, obviously because he was the first one. Mm-hmm. I didn't sit down, I don't think for two and a half years, especially in restaurants. I would have to, we'd have to 
take turns eating. For sure. Ava, I don't remember. She was great. Lily, I had a freak out moment. I was sitting in the kitchen table. Danielle, I think, was taking a nap. Lily was a newborn. She's in my hands. I'm feeding her with the bottle. Nathan's pulling one arm. He wants to play Lego. Ava's pulling the other arm. She wants to have a dance party. <laughs> so what do you do? Redirect. <laughs> That's something Danielle taught me. Redirect. Redirect. <laughs> no, I mean, you You know, that was a specific moment in time where I was at capacity because yeah. I didn't have enough to give to all three. For sure. But for you, it's a piece of cake. We'll see. Wait till you get to three. Then we'll, we'll talk. See. So what do you do for yourself? What hobbies we? You oh, and I, you do and I, I have hobbies? Talked about some some smoking some meat. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's one. There's a couple things in this. One is, um, February of this year was the first time I sat down at a piano to have a piano lesson. That I give a lot of credit to Danielle because she plays interference mm-hmm. with the three kids. On Tuesdays from 5.30 to 6.30 when I have a piano lesson with Elizabeth. Is your lesson at home? It's at our house. I can envision what this looks yeah. like. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's great. <laughs> so, <laughs> my instructor is brilliant okay. as far as piano. Mm-hmm. I hope she doesn't listen to podcasts. <laughs> she is Looney Tunes. Oh, my God. I could elaborate, but I don't think I need to. She is, you know, she could be taking a sip of her tea not looking at what i'm doing and will say no that was d you need to hit e wow brilliant i mean just unbelievable but how i started playing piano we bought a piano danielle grew up piano lessons wanted our kids to have piano lessons so she put nathan in piano lessons at somebody's house but we have a piano in our house for practice at the same time my mother-in-law who is not seven years old Mm -hmm. she's at the other (laughs) side of life started taking piano lessons three years before oh, wow. so that that's one cool thing i mean my mother-in-law decides i want to take piano lessons she takes piano lessons so nathan's in piano lessons we have a piano in the house i was at my in-laws and i heard this music and i'm like what is who is who's playing i'm like trying to piece together who's playing this music it mm-hmm. was beautifully played and it was my mother-in-law wow i was like oh my god so i made the comment to her maybe i should take piano lessons i didn't it was just like that. It was a thought mm-hmm. out loud. She called me the next day and said, you want piano lessons? I'm like, yeah, you know, I was thinking it'd be cool. And then cut me off. My, my teacher will be at your house Sunday at 10 a.m. I pay her 50 bucks. You pay her 50 bucks. That's awesome. Cool. That's so kind of how you are. With just do it kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah. There's. Um, that is definitely a you thing. <laughs> so she is Moroccan. Okay. There's a whole stereotype of Moroccan Jewish mother-in-laws Interesting. she is very much that okay i'll have to look that up because yeah. i've never heard of this <laughs> so you know on the one side of the spectrum you're not going to find a more generous and nurturing person on mm-hmm. the other side of the spectrum it's that yeah <laughs> you said you wanted it you want it? Do it yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're gonna get it whether you want it or not anymore just do it that's so funny. that's how i started taking piano lessons literally february um we sat down with the you know intro 101 book and she showed me where middle c was on the piano i knew nothing today i could put some songs together that's awesome they're not pro level but you would know that i'm playing the theme to star wars when i'm playing the theme to star wars okay yeah I, you I was, might recognize I was like hot cross buns not no i'm beyond hot cross buns <laughs> i could you might recognize viva la vida from coldplay okay wow i think i'm i played well enough that you would recognize it it's really slow but that's awesome you would recognize it then smoking that you you brought up 
Yeah. Smoking meat. For all Smoking meat specifically. Yes. Danielle bought me a Weber Smoky Mountain smoker for Father's Day. It's <laughs> a lot of smokes. Yeah. <laughs> That's the, for those that know, they know what that is. It looks like a little R2-D2 smoker. Yep. We used to smoke our turkeys growing up. In one of those? Mm-hmm. So today, that was Father's Day. When was Father's Day? Mm. May? June. June? Yeah. July. I don't June. know when. June. It's June. Earlier this year. <laughs> I have three smokers now. Wow. Two Weber Smoky Mountains and a Traeger. I would have just two, but she bought me the intro level sized Weber Smoky Mountain, which if you go to Costco and get a brisket, that mm-hmm. thing's too small to make a brisket. So I went on offer up because I'm a, I'm a cool, like mm-hmm. older techie dude. <laughs> I and I bought, cheap. <laughs> I bought the bigger one. <laughs> no, I'm a great negotiator. Though. <laughs> I bought the bigger one, but then I was at Costco and I did the move that Danielle does to me. I'm like, mm-hmm. There's a great deal. I got to get this Traeger mm-hmm. where I would say, how much is it? And she says, oh, my God, it's whatever, 30 percent off. Well, yeah. how much is it? All that. So I did that tactic on her. I said, you you will not believe it on their <laughs> website is twelve hundred bucks. Costco sells it for eight ninety nine. The Traeger Rocho is here today at seven ninety nine. <laughs> and today. I get two bags of pellets and I get the cover. And she's like, you have to get it. You have to get it. Amazing. But I have a trigger. So it's different types of uh, the process is different. You try to get the same result. I talk about the Weber versus the Traeger. One is stick shift. One is automatic. Interesting. Weber is stick shift. Traeger is automatic. And the Traeger is where you're getting your um, your brisket bay life on. For those of you that don't know, (laughs) Salt Bay. Salt Bay. Salt Bay is. No, I do it on both. That's uh, I've watched the the videos of where you're like slow yes. with the the meat hand glove and the <laughs> knife and you're if yeah. you guys could see me I'm I'm doing that um, but yeah looks good yeah or just f- go to my Facebook page or Instagram and look for one of those for sure they're very Instagrammable you can this, almost this smell meat. it like you can looking at it yeah it looks really good yeah so I went from zero to I want to open a restaurant in about two oh, months as a retail broker let me talk to you about that yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. let me talk to you <laughs> I don't know if you let would. me talk to you so I don't know if you'd do that immediately maybe. I have a I have a coaching sensei I call him my okay. sensei his name is Tom Dodone Tom got into smoking way before I did. Tom and his brother Itai and his fam- their families and, and my family were getting have gotten really close in the last year or so, probably two years now. So I get into smoking. I know Tom's into smoking. I text him endlessly about these questions, and I'm gearing up for my first <laughs> smoke, and I screwed everything up, and he's talking me through it, how to change the fire temperature, all this stuff anyway. So I express some thoughts and feelings to Tom about this smoking stuff, and everything I say that I think is nuts, he's like, I thought about the same thing. So I'm like, I would, I would love to open a restaurant. He goes, I'm going to sell my company in five years and I'm going to open a restaurant. So I think about how would I market a restaurant like this? I've got a whole marketing plan. This is interesting. Oh, it's great. Just all in smoked meats? Yeah. Okay. Well, and a butcher. Yeah. Yeah. So for example, Jared, mm-hmm. have him come over. We talk about what he likes, sell him some ribs, pork ribs, beef ribs, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. What kind of equipment do you have at your house? Great. So I, I log it all. And then I have a record of it. And I know what he's buying. And I'm going to text him from time to time. Hey, Jared, it's been three weeks since your last smoke. That's Just awesome. got these awesome things that you're thinking about. You love these. And by the way, I know you like bacon-wrapped jalapenos. we got some of those. I feel like you're taking I it back old school. I sell the shit out of this stuff. I have a whole uh, smoking camp that we would do on Sundays for men who want <laughs> to learn how to smoke. 
and where's a camp? Why of course not a camp? A camp? Yeah. <laughs> There's so many intricacies to smoking. It's like, oh, I want to. You see the the picture on Facebook. You're like, I want to learn how to do this. Mm-hmm. Where are you going to learn how to do it? Yeah, that's true. I'll tell you, you have how to find I learned. Someone else. That, yeah. Yeah. But. I would have a camp on Sunday. You come, we start at four 30 in the morning. So it's done by four 30 PM. You can take it to dinner to your family and be a hero that night when they eat it. They're like, Oh my God, that's amazing. And I would go on offer up and all these other little places where people are selling smokers. And mm-hmm. I would say, we're not going to buy it, but if you want to donate it to the smoker graveyard, you're welcome to. <laughs> so at my restaurant in the smokers camp, I've got every smoker imaginable and you're going to come to smoking camp because you want to learn how to do this. I like and that. I ask you about, what kind of smoker you want and talk to you about the different features and let you pick one and sell you the meat to do it on. And I got you. Have you um, trademarked this yet? Have no, you, you know, no. <laughs> we're a long way from that. Okay. <laughs> Remember we talked about what you add and what you're taking away. Yeah, we're, a long sure. way, we're a long way from that. I like it though. It's, it's nice to see you so passionate about smoking. I get nuts. You're, I get nuts. Your hand um, gestures were almost <laughs> as heavy as when you were talking about getting back into brokerage. You mean so. right now? Yeah. As I'm you, talking to yeah, you? Yeah, you got smoking meat. And Fired was, up. Yeah, it was insane. So there's a lesson here, which is Rick Myers was the first guest ever on this podcast. And mm-hmm. one of the things that we learned while we were sitting down, it wasn't one of my takeaways, when we sat down is it can be learned. He talked about football and basketball one of the formative things in his life were the coaches that were around but also golf and anything else public speaking anything can be learned it's a process if you break it down just like my first move on the piano you'll get an instructor and learn where c is because then it's c d e f g and the other way and then you learn chords and then you learn how to put stuff together the same thing with smoking meat a brisket anything Mm -hmm. else to learn you know, fire and heat and its effects on the meat itself and flavor profiles and temperature versus tenderness. For example, ribs, mm-hmm. you don't have to throb with a, with a, with a, um, pro, excuse me, probe with a thermometer. Uh-huh. You feel the tenderness of it and then you know it's done versus other meat. You can tell what temperature it is. Then you know it's done. A brisket, you can feel if it's done when it gets wobbly or not. (laughs) So how, you know, anything that you are passionate about or think you want to be passionate about, you can learn it. For example, you also didn't know I'm a gourmet Michelin star level pasta maker now. Uh, I did see that. Yeah. You saw. Yeah. Yes. Did you know that I'm Michelin star? I did not know your Michelin star. I've trained under two Michelin star chefs and also Thomas Keller. Okay. Well, I don't think has a Michelin star, (laughs) but he has a very famous restaurant called French Laundry. Uh Uh-huh. In the Napa area. Yeah. I'm familiar with the restaurant. That's hilarious. So getting away with a joke, there's an app that I signed up for about a year ago called Masterclass. Okay. It's not the only one of its kind out there, Mm -hmm. but it's a damn good one where you pay something dumb. I think it's like $180 a year. Okay. And there are masterclasses on all these different categories, culinary, arts, writing. That's cool. Martin Scorsese has a masterclass on how to make movies. But the pasta comment is... Gordon Ramsay has two master classes and three of them are how to make pasta dough, how to roll out pasta, how to make pasta. There's another chef who I can't pronounce his name, but he's a Italian Michelin star, three wow. Michelin stars. Gordon Ramsay only has one. I watched how he makes his pasta dough and Tom Keller also a little bit different. So do you use semolina? So the flour, you're talking about the yeah. different types of flour. <laughs> and I know I this because I am uh, <laughs> I trained under great chefs. Yeah. I trained under the great French chefs of the world. Yeah, three different types of flour that you could use. Mm-hmm. Your typical all-purpose flour, which is what I used the first few times. And okay. then there's semolina and then there's like double O something or another. Mm-hmm. 
So I got double O in the semolina at Whole Foods last time. I haven't used semolina yet. I like semolina best. But I also, um, you were like mm. cutting your pasta with it. Yeah. I just got one of those. From wedding gifts are amazing, right? Like nice? they're like so cool because they're not necessarily things you would buy them. So Danielle yourself. bought me the smoker. I bought her that. She hasn't yeah. used it yet. I've used it. So I, um, growing up that we would make our own gnocchi and cavatelli. So like you don't even need, wow. you just like cut it with you your. You roll it. Yeah, with your thumb. You got this like wrist thumb. Thomas Keller there. taught me how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, before we get too far off. Um, oh, we are way far I know, off. and I feel like we are going for a very long time or it's just dark outside and it's making me nervous. Um, but Hour and a half so far? Is that normal? Is that long? It's, it's amazing how quickly the time goes. Okay, good. Um, there's something big happening for you in a month. What? Or two. Oh, my birthday? <laughs> <laughs> You're turning I was like, wait, are you 40? making an announcement that I don't know about from something you learned from someone? I am no. turning 40. <laughs> Uh, that's big. First question. Is this where you thought you would be at 40? That's a good first question. I think so. So three things come to mind in the, uh, you know, risking sounding cheesy, but Mm -hmm. being true to the, to the question. It was sometime last year that I started thinking about benchmarks at 40. I wanted to have a book written Mm -hmm. called takeaways. I wanted to be in fighting weight shape. Whatever that means. I don't have it figured <laughs> out. But I'm like, what's your fighting weight? Yeah. <laughs> no idea. But in shape, in a way. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be able to play like a mini concert Okay. at my 40th birthday. I will have none of those accomplished. <laughs> um, but I mean, where you could do a mini concert where to find mini. I could, actually. That one, I of the three, I could pull that one off. Okay. It's not bad. I mean, I've got right now it's December, what is it, December 19th. I mm-hmm. could probably get down to fighting weight if I really wanted to. But there are realities to those things. Like one, if I really, if I really made it an objective to write a book, mm-hmm. what does that take? What does that really mean? What kind of commitment and dedication would I have to um, put forward? And at what cost? What, mm-hmm. what do I have to remove in order to do that? Mm-hmm. So when I think about that, is it really that important for me right now? What stops me from saying, yes, it is, is what do I do with it once I have it? I don't have that all worked out, and it doesn't seem like that's what's important. The most important thing mm-hmm. to the level of dedication and commitment and discipline that I would need to commit for a book. For sure. It's not just a easy thing to do. Um, I could probably play a little mini concert <laughs> were there was there a time though like for example in your 30s like when you turned 30 was they're like okay you have just come to the end of one decade of your life and then you're starting a new one mm-hmm. where was there a point there where you're like okay i did these things i mean obviously your 20s were you know weird um <laughs> but yeah, 20s you're you're going day by day for sure and but were there certain certain things that you wanted to see for yourself were there you know not just your three goals mm-hmm. that you thought of last year i mean big life yeah. things like did you you you've been married for 10 years mm-hmm. uh you have three kids now did mm-hmm. you envision all of those things by 40 not in the way that you said it mm-hmm. there's i I don't know when I started saying it, but I picked this up. I always say life doesn't actually start until you're 40. Mm-hmm. And I say that and people are like, oh, my God, 40, you're over the hill. It's it's over. 
And I really mean I don't feel like life actually starts until you're 40. And why I say that and what I mean by that is, like you said, 20 to 30, every year, I remember this. I remember when I was 19 to 20, I look back when I was 20 years old on my life at 19 thinking, oh, my God, I thought I had everything figured out. I didn't know anything. And then from 20 to 21 to 20, the same thing and, and so on. So I realized then you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't think I started thinking about in 10 year increments until maybe this year or maybe last year. Interesting. Like what does 50 look like? Mm-hmm. I n- probably never. And as you kind of go through life and get to a point where you, you know what you don't want. That's for me where it starts. I know. I'm just not interested. I've tried it. I don't need to try that. I don't, I don't want it. Mm-hmm. So there's time and, and, uh, and space that you can focus on what you do want mm-hmm. and be more intentional. And then things really start life in a way, time starts slowing down where you can start thinking about what does 10 years look like? Mm-hmm. Kind of going back to if I really wanted to write a book, it's a 24 month out time mm-hmm. frame if I want to do it right. Mm-hmm. So do I want to make the decision to start this path that two years from now, the result will come up? Mm-hmm. I don't know when it is exactly, but you get to a point where you start thinking about that. Great example. You and I first met. Mm-hmm. I, Jared said she'd be great for the CCIM committee. Mm-hmm. You, you, that was not on your <laughs> radar at all. It was not on your radar to say, I want to be on the CCIM committee. I want a CCIM designation. I want to be on the CCIM board. And mm-hmm. In order to do that, I need to take this first step. But yeah. it came to you and you kind of went along with it. Mm-hmm. If someone says to me now, we would like you involved on, uh, you know, this whatever board. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Before I say yes, because I'm flattered you ask and mm-hmm. the board is really remarkable people that I'd love to be around. I need to th- ask myself, what does this decision mean? By saying yes to this, what am I saying no to? Even though it doesn't feel like that, it's true now. Uh, by saying yes to this, what implication does this have on my life three, five, 10 years from now? Mm -hmm. So things really start slowing down. So life doesn't start until 40. I have a family. I don't need to go find someone and start that process. I have a family. Kids are eight, five and three. Although I know there's an incredible journey from here forward. Mm -hmm. It's all pretty well set and established. Um, Great global recession notwithstanding, knock on wood, we're doing Mm -hmm. okay financially. Mm -hmm. I'm at MDL Group. Mm -hmm. I don't have any thought or desire or itch or anything not to be here. Mm -hmm. This is a 10 or 20 year thing. Mm -hmm. And I say 10 or 20 because who knows what could happen. But as I'm thinking about it, this is my place for the next 10, 20 years. Mm -hmm. I'm not figuring that out. Yeah. Done. There's a lot of security in in where you're at right now. Yeah. So I guess this... The security part translates to time means something different now. Mm -hmm. So I'm coming on to 40. I do think about and I do have conversations with people in my Vistage group around what do I need to be doing now to affect the next decade of my life? Hmm. What does 40 to 50 need to look like? In fact, Kevin Oder, who's now my Vistage chair, was on season one of Takeaways. Mm -hmm. And we talked about this and he did a life plan. There's a whole process called a Peterson life plan. And they take you through your entire life, similar to what you just did with me. Mm-hmm. You should be a Patterson <laughs> consultant, actually. <laughs> and based on your experiences, based on you know, your strengths, what moves the needle for you emotionally, spiritually, motivationally, everything, 
you know, these are the, the, the work product is these are the things that you could be doing that would give you the, the fulfillment that you want in your life. So I start, I'm not thinking, you know, 40 to 60. I am absolutely thinking 40 to 50. Mm -hmm. I like that. You're giving me a lot of comfort too, because it's funny. Um, I find myself saying this a lot more recently. Um, and I think it's also just the whole being newly married, mm -hmm. but it's funny because, you know, in your twenties, you're like, you're experience like you're experiencing life and experimenting with life, like figuring out what works for you, what That's doesn't work for it. you. Mm -hmm. And now I, I'm 32 and I'm at this point where, you know, I'm doing really well in my career and I have a husband who I love and adore and he's fantastic. And, but like, sometimes I'm like, is this real? Like, to, this is where my experiments like mm -hmm. led me. Like this is what my life is. So I can see when you're saying that like life actually starts at 40, because I feel like at 40, I'll probably be like, Oh no, that's your life. Like this is your life. And yeah. now like now here go, you mm -hmm. know, like because right now I'm like, I wake up and look at my husband. I'm like, so this is who you are. Like, you this is, yeah, you know, yeah. As a little girl, you always wonder who your husband's going to be. And I'm like, so you're real. You're yeah. You want to poke yeah. him. And then even with like work, I'm like, I've always wanted to do this my whole life. And here I am doing it. Like it's, it's such a surreal mm -hmm. thing. So I can see what you're saying that like at 40 where you've kind of gotten over that and you're like, now, now you know how to do it and you're, and you've been doing it where it's not so much like, okay, this is what, this is what I've gotten, you know, up to this point. So in your last decade, what was your most defining moment? Between 30 and 40? Yeah. Well, I have to think back to 30. Where was I at 30? <laughs> Let me get Jared. <laughs> yeah. Go get Jared. What was that? 2010? Yeah. Two thousand ten, we went to NAI from Prudential IPG. That was one. It wasn't probably the most defining. It could have been coming here. This is professionally speaking. Mm -hmm. um, between two thousand ten and two thousand twenty, I had three kids. I lost my mom. I got married. Which I was trying to think when that actually happened. Mm -hmm. No, that was two thousand nine whoops <laughs> um so that was right on the heels of 2010 um i don't know which of any of those is the most defining because but a lot of you're, you're, you're sort of defined yeah. in different ways i have my work identity and what defined me there was certainly coming here uh joining vistage having that um opportunity that mm -hmm. kurt and carol give them credit of you know, it's a lot of money to be in a group like Vistage, mm -hmm. and it's a lot of time. But being there, I can point to at least two or three transformative moments where you bring an issue to this peer group, and they tell you, it's not your issue, it's something else. Mm -hmm. Whoa. Yeah. Then you realize, you start noticing things in your life elsewhere where what you're thinking about might not be true. Think about what I just said. Mm -hmm. You have a belief in your mind based on all your experiences and reference points around you. And it's not true. Mm -hmm. I'm going to digress a bit because you brought up something earlier about parents and parenting. And I was listening to a podcast and someone said something so profound. He said, so few people go and find out who their grandparents were or even their grand, their parents. So their mm -hmm. great grandparents were where they grew up, why they made the decisions they made. 
what affected them and their lives and the choices they made. Mm -hmm. And why is that so important? You know, being a parent, you see your parents in you, Mm -hmm. whether you want to or not. The things my parents said that you think, oh, I'll never say that. Oh, yeah, you are because that's who you are. You're a copy of them and they're a copy of their parents and they're a copy of their parents. So in a way, everything you're doing right now, Mm -hmm. not everything, most of everything you're doing right now is affected by someone who you may or may not even know. Mm-hmm. And the, the point of the person on the podcast, they were saying, if you do go and learn about that, it frees you to decide, do I want to accept this as who I am, as my identity, or not? Mm-hmm. And going through that process, you can decide for yourself the trajectory of your life. For sure. I love that. It's actually, I, I find a lot of interest in that, but, and I, I think it's mostly just because of my own therapy that I've been through and really having to analyze your childhood and where you come from. And so then, you know, when I felt like I was in a, a decent place, I started doing it with my, my parents. I'm like, why are you this way? And then I'm starting to look at my grandparents and I'm like, what did you do? And then like, you know, like, yeah, I want to see mm-hmm. like how this all boiled down to me. And then furthermore into my children, you know, and, and I think that that is important and it's a powerful thing, especially to be able to do and to look at yourself and say, well, also I don't have to be this way. I can be something different. And for you, it's mm-hmm. a message that's saying, nope, that's wrong. And you're like, but my whole life I've, I've said that this is right and now, now it's wrong, but it opens your mind. So, in so such the a trick is powerful. nobody, nobody in Vistage is saying that all they're doing is asking you questions like you so did with your parents yeah. and your grandparents. Mm-hmm. And through this process of continuing to ask the questions, mm-hmm. you come up to truth or your truth. That's awesome. I like it. So that's what 40 looks like for me. I think the biggest thing right now is going into 40 that I really want to figure out for myself is mm-hmm. is health and fitness. Okay. Because I feel like what we talked about, decisions today have a rippling effect three, five, ten years yes. all the way, you know, for the rest of my lifetime. I feel like if I don't figure this out and put it back into my daily routines or weekly routines or mental behavior, mental and physical behavior, I'm not going to figure it out. For sure. And I think you could make those changes. That's actually a, a good thing that you should talk to Doherty about, too. Because he did a huge change 10 years ago about really prioritizing his health. And you should also ask him about a photo that he has in his cabinet of himself in his bodybuilding days when he was, like, in his early 20s that he used to, like, keep there <laughs> to, like, encourage himself but still eat. I might just have you do the, yeah. the conversation with I Doherty. Might. This could be good. <laughs> I know way too much about Doherty. <laughs> um, but no, I, I, I always thought that that was actually really admirable about him because mm-hmm. he wasn't, you know, super young. He's going to get mad at me for saying that. But when How he old? decided to make a life change, I mean, he was over, I would say he was over 50. So that's like, that's like <laughs> it shows you what's possible. That's yeah. what my, mo- my mother-in-law in her 70s decided I will be a piano player. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. And you can just do that. You, yeah. you absolutely can. And what's cool, what's so exciting about these days today, where if mm-hmm. someone is, is listening to this saying, oh, I can't do that, I would never do that, or it's such bullshit. Mm-hmm. I'm a Michelin star pasta maker mm-hmm. because it's all out there. <laughs> you don't have to read a recipe. That's how I, the, this is the, the contrast. The first time I made pasta dough, I read it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this isn't working because I don't know. 
I just put all the eggs in and mixed it all the flour in and it came out to this consistency that I didn't look like dough to me. Mm-hmm. So I had no idea what I was doing because I couldn't see it. But then when Gordon Ramsay took me step by step, it's and was so nice. It's in the nice. Process, I'm sure it's <laughs> but the point is, it doesn't matter what it is. Playing yeah. piano, you can learn on YouTube or get an instructor or whatever. Physical fitness. There's more gyms out there, different types, anything, mm-hmm. all the all the issues mentally more so than anything around. Oh, I can't work out. All that's been gamified with things like raw fitness and CrossFit and Peloton. Mm-hmm. There's no excuse not to do what you want to do and do it at the highest level possible. The reason I'm such a master smoker guy Mm -hmm. in a short amount of time, it's only been four or five months Mm -hmm. is because I found in masterclass, I didn't sign up for it because of him, but Aaron Franklin, Franklin's barbecue in Texas, he has a masterclass Mm -hmm. and I watched how to trim a brisket probably 20 times and as I trimmed my first brisket I had it there hitting rewind play rewind play and I trimmed a brisket and he takes you step by step hour by hour temperature by temperature heat wood the meat itself the muscles inside the brisket it's a complex thing to dedicate 13 hours 14 hours of your life to make food but when this guy who is a master Mm-hmm. takes you through it step by step. There's no excuse for me not to do it at the highest level. Yeah, I agree. I love it. Um, there's one last question that I want to ask you. I didn't want to ask you what you ask everyone else because you've already answered that. Uh, so what I did want to ask you is you having a, a podcast, you have now interviewed how many people? A million. Yeah. A million two. Yeah, you know, no big deal. <laughs> Brush his shoulder. Uh, so, I mean, maybe there, 20. You definitely or have so. to learn how, how to do those things. And I think that there's always the question of, you know, if people commonly will ask, if you could have a meal with anybody dead or alive, who would that be? Mm. And for you, now having interview skills, if you could interview anybody dead or alive, who would that be? Seth Godin. Really? Right Why? now? Yeah. Oh, man. This guy puts out so much of himself into the world. And I heard him say once, don't judge me on what I do. Judge me on what my students are doing. Wow. He just takes it to a whole nother, another level. That is deep. Yeah. But so much of what he puts out resonates with me. And I put it into practice in my life all the time. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. The other thing is exactly what you talked about. He has 19 books. So pretty much everything he's thinking about is published somewhere. Wow. He has a daily blog seven days a week, mm-hmm. seven days a week. He made a commitment years ago to do this daily That's and he's still going. And there's reasons why somebody would do, um, commit to a daily activity, whatever it is, but he decided to do a blog. He has his own podcast. He has a few online workshops. He's interviewed endlessly, not really endlessly because he's selective about where he spends his time and with who, and he's got Ted talks. So there's all of this out there. Mm-hmm. So my, if I did have the opportunity to interview him, what would I bring to this experience mm-hmm. that would be meaningful for him to share what he hasn't shared before or shared in a different way? And what would be a successful interview Mm -hmm. where I could tease out something that he hasn't already expressed in some other platform. For sure. 
so not only what can you actually get out of him, but even the challenge of being able to interview somebody who's already exposed so much. So the, the first part of that, what can I get out of him? The specifically, yeah. you know, I would sit down and say, all right, Angelica, here's what I know about you. And I, I would ask you questions about what I already know. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I may already even know the answers. Mm-hmm. What, did that, what did I accomplish? Yeah. Maybe nothing except for what I know now is recorded and other people get to listen to it. Mm-hmm. The successful part is when you look at it differently, when you see it, yes, see it differently, but also see it for what it is. Mm-hmm. And you're able to bring a different perspective to it. That would be a successful interview. Mm-hmm. And there there would be a monumental challenge with someone like Seth Godin to do that. That's awesome. I like it. I was actually sh- surprised by that. Who would you answer. think that I would say? Well, I always feel like most people choose someone dead. I guess I don't spend that much time today studying yeah. dead people. I mean, I might want to talk to my great-great-grandparents, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I want to know. Why. That would be cool. Yeah. but there's If you could only have one, that was the first one that came to mind. If I could have more than one. Uh, my grandfather, who I'm named after, that'd mm. be cool to sit down and have a conversation with him, who's passed away mm-hmm. a long time ago. Um, I would have been really, you said great, great grandfather. No, great. No. I thought you said great, great grandfather. I'm like, I would have been really Whatever surprised. I said, yeah. I meant to say my grandfather, <laughs> okay, my mother's sorry. father. Got it. Uh, he, he comes to mind. And I could go on and on and on. But there's one other thing where I thought you were going with this, which was not where you went with it at all, Mm -hmm. but how you learn. This is another thing that you go back to. It can be learned. Mm -hmm. So when I decided to do this, I didn't want to just jump in and, you know, take my best shot. Larry King has a book, how to talk to anyone, any, anywhere, anytime. I read his book. One of the best interviewers of our day, James Altucher, whose podcast I listened to and still listen to, who greatly influenced me even wanting to do this, talks about when he got into, maybe not when he got into it, but at some point he wanted to be a better interviewer. He studied Howard Stern and talked about the different tactics. And I never thought about Howard Stern in that way until he said it. Mm -hmm. So what does he do that's different than Oprah or Ellen DeGeneres or all these other people who talk to people in an interview format for a living? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, Howard, I feel like Howard got such a bad rap for such a long time. In fact, I was just talking to Robin Sivish in my office about this because she listens to him daily. And for me, I still associate with him, like associate him being such a raunchy mm-hmm. guy. But I think what he is, he has no fear on that. He just gets down and dirty and doesn't really care what, like, you know, envelope he's pushing or what boundary. And no, he does care very much <laughs> and he does it and he does it with skill yeah. and tactics. And I think, I don't know if it was an article that I read or somebody that talked about the way he interviews. And if you go back through his career, when and how it shifted, mm-hmm. but why he's able to get people to talk about their most intimate sexual experiences is it's, that's a skill. Mm-hmm. He does go for it and mm-hmm. other people might stay away from that, but there's a skill and they talk about how he comes at it from different directions. And then as he was going through a divorce and got into therapy, how his style changed to be more counseling wise. Yeah. And the set in his studio, the lights are dimmed and it's comfortable. And the way that he asks questions is like a therapist. Yeah. So all of that. Y- it's easy to look at Howard Stern and say, raunchy, creepy, whatever, creepy, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. But then when you look at it from this lens, is this guy's a masterful mm-hmm. interviewer. Yeah, and I would agree. Something it's a skill that he developed 
and learned with intention. Interesting. I like it. Well, I think that's all I have for you. Well, that was great. <laughs> that was probably the longest takeaways that we've ever done. Really? Yes. <laughs> and I don't know if you want to do the sign-off or I'll do the sign-off, but um, I want to thank you because you did take the time, your own time, and the research that you did to prepare yourself for this is actually to get me to see myself through the people around me is a gift that you gave me today. So thank you. You're welcome. That was a, a very intended goal was I don't think that you do see what you often bring to other people. So I wanted to show what you have done in so few interactions with myself and then really talk to the people who you interact with daily. So I hope I accomplished that for you. Uh, I wish you much success in season three. And if you need me to interview anyone else, I'll keep working on my skills. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Angelica. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Leave us a comment. Leave us a review. Tune in next time. Thank you for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Takeaways podcast is about sharing and paying it forward. If you like this show, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. It really goes a long way. And if you really like this show, please share takeaways with a friend. Thank you and tune in next time.